It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That created starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself to the world, but it don't need something to your own life. Speed it up and that speed got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but the seven gangs and the government for hire in the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Reporters got to jump in the ground with that low plane Find them up for overflow Five minutes corner to put in a loose Leave your devil, save your devil world in your own need To your heart, tell me that the river in the river was the right You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right My feeling is pretty It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it And I feel fine Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom, I say. And Bloom! Aha! Well, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a fall fountain of fortitude in a failing world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a fossil, I'll admit it, but I've got a fixation, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster that's a mouthful (laughs) i knew exactly what you were going to say this is amy alton i'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife also known as nurse amy she's the hostess with the mostest so bright that i've gotta wear shades that's right together we're the watchers on the wall and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls, falls apart. apart. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. That's right. <laughs> Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a mischievous marmot? Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Samey and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Don't listen to a thing we say, or at least don't admit to it, but we just (laughs) hope that some of this stuff makes sense to you. If you've got sense, common sense that is, I'll bet it does. We want you to connect with us, and so here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Well, you can always write to us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And our Facebook at Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. That's a survival, survival. that is a Facebook.com forward slash groups. (laughs) Hey, you know, we were honored a while ago by Jack Spirico of the Survival Podcast. He named us to his expert council as medical experts, and we really appreciate it. The survivalpodcast.com is probably the granddaddy of all podcasts. I think he's done about 1,700 of them. 
And we got a question recently on the podcast that I thought was very useful to go into in a tiny bit more detail. And so here we go. This week, my question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council asks about diarrheal disease and dehydration. Indeed, you'll see more deaths as a result of diarrhea and dehydration in a survival setting than deaths from gunfights at the OK Corral. Now, how do I know this? Because armies on both sides in the Civil War are documented to have lost more soldiers to diarrheal diseases like dysentery than from bullets or shrapnel. Now, your question assumes clean water stores and treatment processes. That's a pretty big assumption. Supplies that sterilize water, like a pot, a method to heat water but to boiling, bleach, iodine, and water containers would be the medical supplies. Yes, they're medical supplies in this case. You would need to make sure you're destroying pathogens, disease-causing organisms. Do you have these supplies in enough quantity to deal with the number of people you have or the time you'll be off the grid? Be honest with yourself. Now, as medic, you're not just the chief medical officer. You're the chief sanitation officer. It's your job to make sure that food is prepared safely, water is sterilized, and human waste is dealt with in the correct manner. If you don't, infectious disease is going to run rampant among your people. You don't have to dig that latrine by yourself, let's hope, or cook all the food, but you do have to set guidelines that cover safe practices. Let's talk about electrolytes. Electrolytes are substances that contain charges called ions that conduct electricity. All forms of life, or higher forms of life at least, can't live without them. Why? Because electrolytes regulate our nerve and muscle function, our body's hydration, our blood pressure, our blood pH, and the rebuilding of damaged tissue. Now the main electrolytes include sodium, potassium, calcium, bicarbonate, magnesium, chloride, and phosphate. Salt water, sodium chloride, is a kind of electrolyte solution. Now, electrolyte imbalance can be manifested in several ways. The symptoms will depend, essentially, on which electrolyte is out of balance and whether that level is too high or too low. An altered level of magnesium, sodium, potassium, calcium can produce everything from muscle spasms to changes in blood pressure to irregular heartbeat to confusion, even seizures, and much, much more. When we sweat, we lose electrolytes, mainly sodium and potassium. And let's face it, you're going to sweat a lot if things go south one day. You can replace lost electrolytes with rehydration solutions, something you can make yourself. In one liter of water, add six to eight teaspoons of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of salt substitute, potassium chloride, and maybe a quarter of a teaspoon of bicarbonate in the form of baking soda. Add some flavoring if you'd like and put the concoction in two liters rather than one for kids. Of course, an old University of Florida alumni like myself can't avoid mentioning electrolyte-rich fluids like Gatorade, designed to essentially be colored, flavored sweat that you can drink. Water can keep you hydrated, but it isn't as useful as a replacement for electrolytes than fluids that have electrolytes in them. Of course, a balanced diet will have them too. If you've got your food and other supplies in good order, you've gone a long way to keeping it together, even if everything else falls apart. Okay, let's talk about natural alternatives. Various natural herbs have been reported to be helpful for diarrhea. Ginger, meadowsweet, blackberry or raspberry leaf, chamomile, peppermint, golden seal, sunflower leaf, garden sage, yarrow, mullein, nettle, slippery elm, Wow, just a lot of choices. With all of these, you can make a tea or infusion 
by pouring a cup of boiling water over one to two teaspoons of dried herbs and let them brew with a lid on for, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes. Strain it, drink a cup every two to three hours or until the person feels better. A small amount of raw honey can be added for taste. You'll find that the strength of effect will vary according to the individual. Don't forget that there are over-the-counter medicines that can help, and you should stockpile these in quantity. Peptobismol and Imodium loperamide in pill form will help stop diarrhea. They don't cure infections, but they'll slow down the number of bowel movements and conserve water. Oh, one last thing. You might think that antibiotics are needed for diarrheal disease. In certain circumstances, you're absolutely right. Doxycycline, metronidas all come to mind as options for your medical storage. Remember, though, that the main side effect of antibiotic use is diarrhea. More on this and some other strategies for diarrhea and dehydration in future episodes. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Today our guest is James Wesley Rawls of Survival Blog. James Wesley Rawls was an Army intelligence officer who resigned his commission when a certain president was elected to office and moved to the mountains where he lives a rural lifestyle and a very prepared lifestyle, perhaps one of the greatest experts in survival that we have today. Hi, Jim. Are you there? Yes. Go ahead, Amy. Well, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you took the time out. I know you are extremely busy, so I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. So let's tell some of the very rare listeners out there who don't know maybe about you yet, or maybe they've heard just a little bit. Uh, Tell us about your background and how you actually became interested in survival. Well, I'm a former Army intelligence officer. I left the military as a captain, as an 03. Uh, I resigned my commission, in fact, the day that Bill Clinton was sworn into office. (laughs) um, (laughs) Now, wait, wait, wait. was that coincidence or on purpose? No, it was not a coincidence at all. Uh, (laughs) My service obligation had ended, and I decided that was a good day to leave the service. Uh, Kind of a a good background in preparedness, uh, not just from my Army intelligence experience, but also from my upbringing. I I was Mm -hmm. raised in a kind of a prepper kind of family. My father was with the Atomic Energy Commission at Lawrence Livermore Laboratories. So I kind of grew up at ground zero, as it were, right there in Livermore where they designed nuclear weapons. So like a lot of kids in that town, I grew up with a very high recognition of the nuclear threat. Most of my classmates in school were either ranchers' kids or the kids of physicists. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also came from a pioneer family. Uh, my family on my father's side had come out west by a covered wagon in the 1850s. And that mm-hmm. pioneer spirit really never wore off. So between the two of those, I guess it was, I was pretty well destined <laughs> to have a, a future in preparedness. Now, you've got a website. It's called survivalblog.com. And personally, I think it's an unbelievable resource for all kinds of topics. Anything you can possibly think of, it's either someone has written about it or they're most likely about to write about it very soon. And you've decided for yourself to simply isolate yourself for possible hard times that are ahead, but you're still willing to share your knowledge on the Internet. 
How do you achieve that sort of isolation but still kind of put yourself out publicly? Well, I don't do public appearances uh, where my face can be seen because uh-huh. I'm very private about where we live. And In fact, uh, none of my neighbors know that I'm a prepper at all. Oh. We live in a very lightly populated area. We're surrounded uh-huh. by national forest. Uh, we have a river that runs through the back end of our property. We're on a very quiet valley that doesn't have any railroad tracks and just has mm-hmm. uh, one small road going through it. We homeschool our kids. We live very self-sufficiently. We have a whole bunch of cattle and horses and a wide variety of small livestock. We do a lot of gardening, and we live pretty much self-sufficiently. It is a long drive into town, but we really (laughs) enjoy our lifestyle. You know, there are people who think about doing the whole homesteading situation, but they might be city folk. And I think it's kind of a culture shock to those that make this decision without even having a taste of it, and they become overwhelmed. I think you were very lucky to have a lot of that training and give that credit to your parents. What kind of advice could you give to someone who sort of raised in the city, lives there now, but are looking to do something like you're doing? What what things should they look for? What should they think about before they make that move? Well, I guess most importantly, they have to recognize that move is not for everyone. There's a lot right. of people who have either family obligations or, okay. or health concerns that keep them clo- close to a big city. And right. if you have a chronic medical condition, obviously you need to be near medical care. And not everyone can live where it's a, I am, where it's a half-hour drive to the nearest town and it's mm-hmm. a, a two-hour drive to the nearest hospital. So it's uh, important that people be realistic. But for those who want to make the move, who want to get back to the land, as it were, Uh I highly recommend it. It it is a challenge. People need to recognize that there's a learning curve for a lot of different things, whether it's gardening or raising livestock or whatever. There are a few risks. You know, whenever you're working with large livestock, for example, there's Mm -hmm. always the risk of injury. And uh, people just need to be realistic about what they can handle at their particular stage of life. You know, if someone is in their late 60s, I wouldn't recommend, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, making a move like that. But for anyone younger, if you're self-employed or if you're telecommuting, for example, if you run your own business, I Mm -hmm. think it's really important that if you can make the move, you go ahead and, and make it because your statistical chances of survival are so much higher if you're in a lightly populated area. Because in most disaster situations, the the highest casualty rates are in highly populated areas. Right. It's a very complex society with very long chains of supply. We're very technologically dependent. And if the power grids go down, all bets are off. Absolutely. Now, let's say I was someone who was like that and I did want to make that move, what do you suggest that they learn before they move? Obviously, some of this is on the job training, well, so to yeah. speak. <laughs> but what should they the job, try to learn? Of, yeah, there's a lot of things, though, that people can learn before they move. You know, even if you uh-huh. live on a little dinky little urban or suburban lot, you could start gardening mm-hmm. now. Rip out your back lawn, folks, and put in a vegetable. <laughs> Get rid of that grass. Yeah, that grass is not doing a lot. <laughs> so, uh-uh. <laughs> uh, not not enough for grazing, that's for sure. So um, rip out that lawn and get get going on gardening. And even for someone who lives in an apartment, 
and you only have a little balcony to work from, you could at least do some container gardening. So you get, you know, get your hands dirty and get used to this. And, and there's, like I said, there's a learning curve with just about everything. Mm-hmm. And moving to the country can be kind of daunting because there's, you're going to be mastering multiple learning curves. For a lot of people, uh, it will mean moving from the coast inland, and usually that means you're dealing with a lot more snow than you're used to. Probably want to have a wood stove. So there's a mm-hmm. whole learning curve of not just burning a wood cook uh, heating stove, but also a wood cook stove. And that has, is a huge learning curve just in itself. It, you're going to ruin a lot of recipes when you first start cooking on a wood stove. <laughs> There's really a learning curve there. And, of right. course, uh, ev- everything involved with surrounding that in terms of felling trees and bucking up wood and uh, hauling wood and splitting wood, there's a learning curve there as well. So there's a lot to learn, but just take it in small steps. And once you do make the move, don't try to master everything instantly. You'll probably want to just get used to being on your property and gardening Mm -hmm. the first year and then move on to small livestock and then eventually Mm -hmm. larger livestock. Now, would you suggest that people maybe get their feet wet? I'm sure there's some ranches or places where families can go and kind of get a taste of of gardening or or maybe tending to animals and and what that entails. I don't think a lot of people realize that you probably get up at like 4 a.m. or something, right? (laughs) It all depends on whether or not we're we're milking. uh, If if we have calves on our cows, uh, we can actually Uh take short trips still. Uh, We just leave the calves on them, and uh, we don't have to get up at the crack of dawn. (laughs) <laughs> but, yeah, there's, there's more time involved. And for anyone who ha- would have a large operation, it could tie you down in terms of travel. I'd recommend that any of your listeners who have country cousins, you know, go, go spend your vacations there. Learn as much as you can about gardening, preferably in the climate zone where you intend to live in the long term. Master those skills early and get up to speed as quickly as you can. I think learning from others is a wonderful thing. And, again, if you have those country cousins, that's great. Like for you, Amy, I'm sure in the medical profession you Mm -hmm. can appreciate there's a huge difference between reading a book and seeing a diagram of suturing versus working on a human patient. (laughs) They're two completely different things. uh, People will recognize that they're out of their depth if they think that they can learn everything they need from books or or even from YouTube videos nowadays um, (laughs) and be ready for, for when everything falls apart. You really have to practice these skills. There's learning curves to all of them. And even if you buy the very best equipment there is, you will find uh, that you have overlooked things, that you have missing bits and pieces, or that you have gaps in your own training, and you only find that out through experience. And that's something you don't want to find out after everything falls apart, where there is no source of resupply for those missing Right, and, and there's no more YouTube videos to watch either. <laughs> right. <laughs> I recommend that people build reference binders. As you wander around the Internet and you find useful information, compile that information, print it out in hard copy, because when the Internet goes away, poof, someday, all those references will be gone unless you have them in hard copy. So so organize them into binders and keep those binders handy 
everything from a repair manual for every piece of equipment you own to every useful recipe you can find to instructions for this, that, and the other. Without those references, you'll be lost. You really need to have them, and you need to have them in hard copy. That's your EMP-proof backup. So it's one thing to have PDF files of, of manuals, for example, mm-hmm. but nothing really beats hard copy. You know, it's fine to also have mm-hmm. PDF copies of things and, and put them right. on a memory stick or whatever. For an absolute worst case, you may not have access to a laptop computer to, to fire those things up. Yeah, I get people who say, well, I've got solar panels, I've got backup batteries, I've got um, um, extra candles, and I say, you know what, those things can be broken, they can be lost, so sure. don't you're, put... You're depending on a whole, you're depending yeah. on an entire chain of technology to make sure that you can read those Kindle files. It's crazy. Nothing get your, get your books, folks. That's right, get your books, folks. Now, we did talk, talk a little bit just now about some of the skills that you considered important for long-term survival. Could you just give me a few more examples of those? First and foremost is water. You really mm-hmm. want to have an independent water source for your home your, or your retreat, where the, the very best solution, of course, is gravity-fed spring water. But short of that, the next best would be a shallow well with a hand pump. The the limit there for a pump where the well cylinder sits at the the pump cylinder sits at the surface is about a 33 foot deep well because that's one mm-hmm. atmosphere pressure. Below that, you can't lift water unless the well the pump cylinder sits in the bottom of the well. And mm-hmm. of course, there's ways of getting around that by connecting a what's called a sucker rod to a pump handle, where mm-hmm. you by means of me- mechanically pumping that cylinder in the bottom of the well by hand. But keep in mind that with a deep well, which is one over one atmosphere, you're fighting mm-hmm. gravity. And it's that much harder to lift a gallon of water the deeper the well is. So mm-hmm. I recommend that if you're looking for a property, you put a good, reliable, shallow source mm-hmm. of water at the top of your priority list. Water is first and foremost. Then you need to think in terms of food storage, gardening, and cooking with alternative power. And for most Americans, they should be thinking, unless you live right in coal country, you should be thinking in terms of living in country that's at least least partially forested, so you'll have a, a ready supply of firewood. And you'll right. want to have both a wood heating stove and a wood cook stove. Excellent. Um, you have a motto, and I think it's an awesome one, so I'd like you to explain it to those who are listening who haven't heard it before. It's called, Use It Up, Wear It Out, Make Do, or Do Without. That's right. That uh, actually was <laughs> an old family motto that I inherited from my mother, and that was something that she grew up with in the Depression uh-huh. of the 1930s. She grew up during the Depression, and a lot of the practical ways of living that she and her family got through the Depression with were passed mm-hmm. along to me. And that, was, that motto was part of it. And I firmly believe that in the next Great Depression, and we probably will have one within our lifetimes, mm-hmm. we're going to have to revert to that, that whole mindset, that whole way of operating. A really good motto. My father's mother actually lived through the Depression, too, and I don't think I ever saw this woman throw anything out 
And I know my father got a lot of hand-me-downs. So it is something that we're going to have to get used to because we're not going to be able to just go to the grocery stores and buy new. People are going to have to learn how to improvise, how to do things for themselves, and how mm-hmm. to work the absolute greatest mileage out of everything they have in their home, whether it's, you know, using a tea bag five times or whether it's um, rebuilding a treadle sewing machine. Exactly. And I think, you know, if you think about parts and, and meaning certain things, that bartering is probably a skill that we su- suggest everyone gets to do. Do you do any bartering where you live now? Oh, yes. Well, where I live, bartering is, is kind of the norm because people don't oh. have a lot of cash here. So mm-hmm. it's really typical that people will swap uh, eggs from their chickens for salmon, for example, or, or uh People will swap one type of garden produce for another or, or swap firewood for um, various services. That's, or huckleberries, for example, is another thing that's very widely bartered here. Oh, wow. Um, so it's part of the culture here. But people need to get used to bartering, and there's a, a, there's a learning curve to that as well. You really need mm-hmm. to practice bartering. Um, you can get used to doing that by just uh, renting a table at a gun show buying table space at a flea market, and practice swapping things back and forth. You, there really is a learning curve. You need to learn how to judge people. You need to mm-hmm. learn to recognize value. And you also need to learn some really crucial things about bartering, like you never barter something perishable for something that you – don't, you don't want to barter away something that's imperishable for something perishable. That's a mistake. And, of course, you never want to do what's called bartering something soft or, or, I'm sorry, bartering something hard for something soft. No. Something that's hard is something that, in, in bartering terms, is something that has intrinsic value, that's imperishable, that's compact, and that's des- desirable, and preferably something divisible. Those are the really hard aspects of a barter item. A soft item is something that has unlimited supply, or something that is perishable, or something that is indivisible. So an example of a really good hard item would be like a mm-hmm. box of 22 long rifle cartridges. Mm-hmm. There you have something that's very hard to replace, very hard to improvise on your own, and mm-hmm. it's also divisible. You could, you could divide that box of 50 cartridges into up to 50 transactions. And that's one of the reasons I consider common caliber ammunition to be one of the finest barter items. It's something that everyone will be looking for, mm-hmm. and people put a premium on it, and yet it, it stores almost indefinitely, if it's stored properly in an airtight cont- or watertight container, and it's something that's easily divisible as well. Well, as someone who hasn't done a lot of bartering, although I have done it a little bit, it's been rather fun when we go to these expo shows. People will bring things and barter. Uh, let's say I was your neighbor, and you had chickens, and I wanted a dozen. What would be something that you would consider bartering for those eggs? What, what would be something that I could bring to the table or something that you have actually done a bartering for? Oh, well, we, we barter for eggs all the time here and for extra uh-huh. milk from our cows. Oh. Uh, so um, it's just a matter of uh, determining what someone else needs and mm-hmm. uh, what you can afford to barter away. 
you know, it's one thing to barter away eggs. It's a whole other to barter away your laying hens. Unless you're, you have a, another brood coming up, you don't want to, you know, one of the advantages of, of livestock is multiplication, and you, you don't want to lose the ability to multiply your flock or your herd. So uh, that's one thing to consider. In, a lot, in most situations, I'm very apt to barter things like eggs because I know I'll always have more of them. I'm usually willing to barter at a very favorable ratio, especially if I'm bartering, since eggs are considered a soft commodity for barter mm-hmm. versus hard, I'm willi- always willing to barter at a very mm-hmm. high ratio of a soft commodity toward a hard commodity. If I have a uh-huh. hard commodity, I will barter very fiercely <laughs> and mm-hmm. ex- expect a, a very high ratio in exchange if what I'm getting for that hard commodity is a soft commodity. Because hard gotcha. commodities in, in a time of scarcity will be almost irreplaceable, whereas soft commodities are still going to be growing on trees, as it were. Exactly, or from animals. I understand exactly what you're talking about. How much does money or coinage factor into your bartering now, for instance, and how much do you think that's going to factor in, say, after a collapse? In most of the situations that I can foresee, the value mm-hmm. of the dollar as a currency unit will basically evaporate. So right. the only dollars that will be worth anything will be silver dollars and right. you know, dimes, quarters, and half dollars minted before 1965. Mm-hmm. That's real money. Uh, we've basically been robbed ever since 1965. Right. They've started circulating these copper tokens that have silver plating on them, and they, they keep calling them coins when they really aren't. And fake money. We'll call it fake money. These paper dollars um, when they really are no longer redeemable for silver. So right. we live in kind of a fantasy land right now. Presently, of course, in barter, I often will mix monetary transactions in with barter transactions where you know, say something is not exactly the same value, and I'll just say, oh, well, well you just give me $15 cash difference and that will make it even mm-hmm. that works fine and in a post-collapse society people will be able to do the same thing with silver dimes or silver quarters or they'll be able to do that with common caliber ammunition or things like multi multivitamin tablets for example where right um, that's something as long as you're within the ex- expiry date of that uh, vitamin that's another commodity where you can you don't have to trade a whole bottle you can you can trade 10 or 15 tablets in a plastic bag and say, okay, well, you know, I'll make change with this. Yeah, I often wonder how, how much money is going to be worth when we're all hungry or needing ammo or, you know, replacing our shoes or needing, you know, our plow fixed or some extra wood. It just, it, it makes me wonder, are we really actually going to be using these coins? And, and you think we are? I think so, although in the very uh-huh. short term, People will be thinking strictly in terms of food and ammunition in right. an absolute crisis. They uh-huh. won't start to think in terms of <clears throat> silver coins for a few months. And then okay. the, one of the beauties of a free market is it very quickly finds equilibrium. And I think the intrinsic value of pre-1965 silver coinage will be very, very quickly recognized. It will be just a few weeks or at most a few months before people mm-hmm. start recognizing them for exactly what they're worth. Well, I was just going to uh, bring up gold because, you know, you're talking about silver here. 
And I know a lot of people are bombarded with advertisements and websites saying, you know, if the world's going to end, you have to store gold. How do you feel about gold? Well, actually, I think gold is too compact a form of wealth for practical mm-hmm. barter. Unless you were to buy one-tenth of one-ounce coins, uh, <laughs> which is about uh, – well, I think the, um, the Canadian maple leaf is made in one-twentieth of an ounce is the very smallest right. you can find. But right. even that is too compact a form of wealth for a, a day-to-day transaction. I mean, what would, what would you trade a one-ounce gold coin for? supply of food for a year or right. uh, you know, a, a couple of a, a dairy cow with calf at side or, or, or right. a riding horse with a saddle. I mean, it's, it's, I'll take your cabin. Very few, yeah. There's very few things that, that people would be willing to trade for mm-hmm. gold, at least with small silver coins. And here I'm talking dimes, quarters and half dollars. Again, they have, sure. to, be, they have to be minted before 1965 to be mm-hmm. uh, truly silver and recognizable as silver. At least with small silver coins, you have an expectation that if you want to buy a loaf of bread or a can of beans or a screwdriver or or something small and useful, that you're going to be able to have a transaction where both parties are going to walk away happy. With gold, I don't, you know, how do you make change with gold? I guess you could use a cold chisel, but that's kind of messy. Absolutely. That's so funny. Um, now, let's talk about um, your list of equipment. We've talked about um, some great skills, and I think bartering is something a lot of people you know, forget about. But tell me about some of the tools that you think are most important for the prepper. Um, and someone who's you know, on a middle-income budget, you can't just go out and wildly spend thousands even, and thousands of dollars. Amy, even for someone on a modest budget, there's some things that every family should have. Every family should have a good quality water filter, for Mm -hmm. example. Uh, Both, actually two, a high-volume water filter like a Big Berkey or a Big Berkey bucket clone, Mm -hmm. and they need a compact water filter for their their get-out-of-dodge kit. And that would Mm -hmm. be something like a Katahdin mini filter or, or a Sawyer pocket filter. Water, again, is always at the top of the list. Uh, some other things that are really important would be uh, things like a uh, dehydrator. Mm-hmm. And you, you probably also want to, if you're handy with tools, make a summer-only non-electric variant of your dehydrator. You want to uh, b- build a frame rack in a screen box that will fit your electric dehydrator trays so that you can use that when the power is out, and you can use it as a solar dehydrator. Um, and it'll be all enclosed in screens to keep flies away from things. A wheat mm-hmm. grinder is crucial, and you want to get a good quality one. Uh, my, my current favorite is a, is a brand called the Wonder Mill. They market one called the Wonder Mill Junior that's less than $250, uh, and mm-hmm. it is an excellent mill as hand mills go. Um, Here at our ranch, we have a country living grain mill, but we bought it 10 years ago, back when they were $250. Now they're over $500 to buy one. Oh. And, uh, yeah, they're really expensive. Wow. But they are built to last. They're built to last a whole lifetime. And they are set up with a a V-belt notch on the wheel so that you can uh, motorize the a regular old-fashioned fan belt, you can, you can run it with electricity if you have a whole bunch of wheat grinding to do at once. 
Um, it, it's in our family we kind of take turns as kind of a game that we play in our kitchen, where you know we're it's kind of like kind of like tag team wrestling where you know we'll, <laughs> we'll take turns on the wheat, wheat grinder until we reach the point of exhaustion and then it's time for someone else to take over. Next, but a wheat grinder is is really important to have. Uh huh. And um, you probably want to have a pressure canner. That's another really important thing. And, of course, there's a lot of accoutrements that go along with that, and you're going to need a huge quantity of canning jars. Watch Craigslist and watch FreeCycle like a hawk. You'll often find large quantities of canning jars that are available for free or for very little money on FreeCycle or Craigslist. Because if you pay the store price for canning jars, you know, a typical family, if they were canning all their own produce out of their garden for an entire winter's worth of food, you're going to require over 1,000 canning jars for one year. And, of course, you oh, want yeah. to stock up heavily on canning lids. There's now a couple of different reusable canning lids on the market, which work remarkably well. And one of those brands is called the Tatler, which is um, a family name, T-A-T-T-L-E-R, Tatler. They're reusable, so you don't have to stock up thousands and thousands of canning lids. Yeah, we actually so have are, quite a few uh, some of those. The, some of the really crucial things to have for self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And then for security, of mm-hmm. course, I recommend that uh, every family be well-armed and that you have, at, at the very minimum, a infrared driveway alarm so you know if, if someone's driving onto your property. There, the brand I recommend is called the Dakota Alert. And that uses the MERS band, MERS band, radio band. And that's right next to the National Weather Service band. So you can have a MERS band walkie-talkie on your hip. And you can have it set with three different channels. One for your MERS uh, Dakota alert frequency. So it'll say, alert, zone one, when someone drives in your driveway. And you flip to channel two. And that's your local National Weather Service alert frequency. And you switch it to channel three, and that can be your push-to-talk frequency for you know, walkie-talkie communications with your neighbors to coordinate retreat security, all that on one radio. Again, that's MERS band, which stands for Multiple Use Radio Service. It's a very lightly used VHF band. It has limited range. It's limited line of sight. But for most of retreat security purposes, you're not going to have to talk more than a few miles anyway. Excellent. Well, that is an amazing list. I want to go back to one thing that you said, and I think everyone could, you know, write this down as they're going, but you talked about something along Craigslist, and I, I actually have never heard, I have heard of Craigslist, but I've never yeah, heard of free, free Cycle. Free cycle, Can, is, yeah. free cycle is a free equivalent of mm-hmm. Craigslist, where basically okay. if someone has extra office furniture, they say it's, it's available free of charge, just come pick it up. And uh, with FreeCycle, it's essentially like uh, the old play it forward game on a grand scale, where basically you, you list all of your extra stuff that you don't need or want on FreeCycle, and in exchange, uh, by listing those things, you make yourself eligible to go and pick up other people's free stuff. So again, it's FreeCycle.org. Wow, that is awesome to know. Thank you so much. I mean, I've actually learned some new things too. <laughs> you know, we all share our information and our skills and our knowledge with each other and you just learn something new every day. Well, you've been a great resource for a lot of people, Amy. 
Uh, you and your husband have helped a lot of people get squared away when it comes to disaster medicine, and you can give yourself a pat on the back because <laughs> because of your efforts, I think a lot more people are going to be living through this. Oh well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know, I think it's a team effort, and I appreciate your website and. I think there's been such a movement to just put out a lot of information. Now, I will say for folks, you've got to weed through it a little bit. <laughs> it's not always accurate. So do your own research. Come to your own conclusions, right? Right. It, weed it, through it. There, there is a lot of uh, mediocrity out there, let's say. But um, yeah. a, a, lot of, a lot of what's out on the Internet is quite useful. And uh-huh. um, you just need to come up to speed and um, – you know, pick the wheat from the chaff. And also, mm-hmm. it's really important that people set their priorities. You need to distinguish between what's nice to have and what you really, really need. And because time is fairly short uh, between now and a, a potential collapse, it's really mm-hmm. important uh, that unless someone has a millionaire's budget, that they prioritize their purchasing and right. not go too far overboard in any particular area. And I constantly see with my consulting clients, uh, they have a tendency to to overdo in a couple of different areas. Uh, One is uh, people who are already recreational shooters and hunters tend to go way overboard on guns and ammunition and reloading equipment. These people already have a dozen guns or more. And then they think the solution to being ready for, for Civil War II or World War III, whichever comes first, is to have 50 guns. Well, no, what you really need is a complete set of web gear for each gun, and you need to have several night vision scopes so you can use those guns at night. Not more guns, and not just more ammunition. You need to really make each gun into a complete weapon system. You need a set of web gear, you need a full set of magazines, you need a few spare parts, you need a cleaning kit Mm -hmm. for every gun, and you need to zero each gun and really become quite competent with it. You need to be competent and confident with that gun. Uh, people who are shooters tend to go a little overboard on guns, and uh, sometimes they don't even stock up a sufficient amount of ammunition for each of their guns. I would much rather have just a few guns with several thousand rounds of ammunition than mm-hmm. a dozen guns and just 100 rounds of ammunition per gun. That's foolishness. Right. Um, the the other area, I hate to say it, Amy, the, the other area that I, where I see people overdo is people who come from a medical background tend to overdo their medical prepping at the expense of things like food security and communications right. and self-defense. You know, it's, right. it's, um, it's really important that people have balance in their preparations. I would much rather prioritize my budget and have well-balanced preparations than to overdo in one area. Because if you overdo in one area, the very best that you can hope for is that you'll be living in an area where you can barter for the things that you've overlooked. But it's, far, it's a far, far better thing to have balanced preparations and then the very few things that you might have overlooked you'll be able to barter for with relative ease. Absolutely. I, I think it's a comfort, comfort zone thing. I do notice in the medical field, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of a defense for those in the medical field who, who probably have gone a little overboard, is that we're thinking two things. And one of the things that we're thinking is, since we have this knowledge, and it is pretty specialized, and most likely most of our neighbors don't have it, that 
we're providing a community service. So right, right. I know personally we feel a responsibility to um, our neighbors, our community, you know, as, as far of a reach as we need to, to go. And so our excessive medical storages is not for personal use, but really to help as many people as we can. Because as a medical professional, most of us got into the field because we have a strong desire to help others. And it's just, right. it's innate, it's a caring, it's a, a motherly or fatherly thing. And so our storage is not really a selfish thing. It really is for the community. And, you know, then they think, you know, also I have bartering items that most people sure. probably won't have. But you're absolutely 100% right, Jim. You're, there has to be a balance. You can't just dump that budget all into that one area. And so my advice to those who are out there who are of the medical profession is please heed Jim's advice and balance yourself. It's a very important thing to do. Great. I, I, I'm glad that we're in accord on that one. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I just want to give a little bit of a defense as to why I know they're doing it. They, <laughs> they come up to us all the time like, oh, I've got this and I've got that, and I'm going to help my neighbors and the old lady down the street and the, you know, the, the young family down the, the street that they don't know anything about medical. You know, they have all these ideas of helping so many people. But you know, I do say, listen, don't forget you know, your food, your energy, your personal security, and you know, all of these things are, are, are all so important. You can't uh, eat a Band-Aid. <laughs> Not going to help you. <laughs> right. So let's talk about, you know, you said, you know, this upcoming collapse. And there's a lot of scenarios. And, and again, I hear so many different things from many, many different people all across the country because we do travel to, to several states. What do you feel, Jim? that m might take our society to the brink? Really, what is your personal biggest concern? What do you see well, happening? The biggest one for me would be an economic collapse because as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned, we've been in the opening stages of an economic collapse since the year 2000, really. Mm -hmm. When we saw the dot-com bubble burst and then we saw the housing collapse and the credit market collapse in 2008, that was part of a, just a whole chain of dominoes and we have mm -hmm. we've yet to see the end of that. And that the tail end of that is going to be very ugly. We're going to see entire currencies wiped out. We're going to see huge fortunes lost in the equities markets and in the bond market. We're going to mm -hmm. see massive layoffs, a deep depression that could last even longer than the depression of the 30s. In fact, uh, the depression of the 30s really wouldn't have ended if it weren't for ramping up for World War II. Right. It was right. Uh, the, the worst of it really was around 1937, 1938. So it's important that people recognize that the, the biggest threat right now is economic collapse, and they need to structure their lives accordingly. And it's really important that people minimize their debt, that they live as self-sufficiently as possible, Mm -hmm. and that they shepherd their resources so that they will have what they need uh, when unemployment does come. And you know, I'm, I'm predicting a depression where 60 or 70% of the population will be out of work. And wow. there is the potential for a total socioeconomic collapse. That's the worst-case scenario where mm -hmm. literally everyone's going to be out of work and the, and the currency will be absolutely worthless 
that's the absolute worst case. But if at the minimum, I think we're likely to see a repeat of the Depression of the 1930s, although it'll probably come in two phases. There'll, ha- there'll be a deflationary phase, and then as the government reacts, there'll probably be a, a, a hyperinflationary stage where they try to basically inflate their way out of the problem. So now, yes, I would put you, the economic collapse at the very top of my number list. Number one, yeah. Yeah, and then just below that, I would say the risk of an X-class solar flare and mm-hmm. a repeat of the, the Carrington event of the 1850s. And if that were to happen today, it would wipe out our entire technological infrastructure. And then we would be back to you know, eight, uh, 18th century technology yeah. probably in very oh, short yeah. order. The, the power, power grids would go down and just basically would not come back up for a generation. Well, that's very scary. And, you know, the other part of that um, economic collapse is if we're so weak, is someone going to come in here and try and take over us? Do you have that fear also? That very well could be. In fact, that, that's what I basically posited in my first novel series. In the, in the Patriot series, which was five books, it was about a hyperinflationary economic collapse that was followed by an invasion of both the United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. And that very well could happen uh, if the collapse is total. Uh, luckily, we have a very well-armed populace, but if the collapse <laughs> were total, uh, there wouldn't be very organized resistance, and it, it could happen. Very scary stuff. You know, you've got a new book coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about Land of Promise? I think it's coming out this uh, Land of Promise is coming out December 1st, 2015. Yes, um, it's actually a, a, it's separate from my Patriot series. Uh, it's a full departure. It's also set in the future. Uh, this one is set about 35 years in the future, and it's following the advent of a global Islamic caliphate. And in fact, this, this book, Land of Promise, is the first book in a multi-novel series that I'm calling the Counter-Caliphate Chronicles. Mm-hmm. It's about resistance to that global caliphate. And uh, in this first book, it focuses on the establishment of a Christian homeland nation, a Christian refuge nation in East Africa that's designed as a, a place of refuge for persecuted Christians from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And it's also a libertarian nation with, with honest money in a world where there, there is no honest money left at all. In fact, there's no, no paper currency left in nearly every nation on the planet. Everyone's gone to electronic currencies, and the people all over the world are being systematically robbed by their governments through inflation. Well, I, we've got a lot to look forward to. And, I, you know, I thought there were some really cool aspects to that, that the citizens are in charge of basically protecting the nation. Right. Um, yes. It's basically a there's, <laughs> there's no standing army. There's only a citizen's militia and there's no police right. forces and no prisons. That's a self-policing society because it's a Christian society. There's actually very little call for traditional policing and the little policing that is done is all done by means of citizens arrest and the criminal justice system is is pretty pretty basic Uh, either Mm -hmm. you're you're referred to church discipline with your church Mm -hmm. or you are fined or you're thrown out of the country and for very serious crimes you'd either be thrown out of the country or you would be executed for capital crimes there would be a country without any prisons whatsoever, not even jails, where uh, trials would take place within a week after uh, someone is arrested for a capital crime. And there would be no appeals. 
the verdict of a jury, and it would be a citizen's jury called ad hoc. There would be no standing judges. The, the, the citizen's jury would render a verdict, and uh, someone would either be exonerated, or they would, in most cases, be banned from the country, banned from ever returning. So it doesn't sound like lawyers have too, too much of a stand in this country. No. <laughs> no. It won't be a, a very litigious society either. And because it is a, a, a Christian homeland nation, uh, people will be expected to treat each other in a Christian way. And that usually exactly. means not suing your brother or sister Christian. So what other uh, projects do you have in the works? Do you have anything else down the pipe? So you're working on the next well, I'm, in I'm that just, series. I'm actually writing the second book in the series right now, and it's, it's called Peace of Resistance, and it uh, is set just a few years later than the first book. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give away too much of the, uh, the storyline, but it mainly takes place in Nigeria following the advent of a what's what I call a neo-Haramist government, which is a... a a part of the global Islamic caliphate that basically is tyrannizing the people of of Nigeria and they they rise up they fight back I've really written this this first book in the series as a message piece I really want to encourage people to think about forming a whole new nation somewhere and I you know if God wills it to happen it'll happen well we can only pray that that's what happens let's talk about how the listeners can get in touch with you, um, mention your oh, website sure. um, again, again, where they my, can find your books. Sure. All, well, my books are all available through Amazon.com and, and at your local bookstore. Three of my Patriot Series books have been national bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers. But uh, my website uh, has been up for 10 years. That's survivalblog.com. It's updated every day. We uh, mm-hmm. have new blog posts daily. Uh, there have been over 50,000 articles and letters posted in the blog and they're all fully archived fully searchable and there is no super secret members only area it's all available free and i recommend that if people want to research any preparedness topics they take a look at survival blog thanks jim for coming on we really appreciate it and we'll see you soon You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.